Well, as most of you know, having recently completed our studies of Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, tonight we're beginning a brand new study uh, of cults and apologetics. Of course, the best place to begin a study like this is with a few important definitions uh, and a few important presuppositions. First of all, we need to have a common definition of the word cult. What is a cult? Why do cults exist? And why are so many people drawn to them? Secondly, what does the word apologetics mean exactly? And how can we use, how should we use apologetics in addressing and Lord willing correcting many of the erroneous beliefs that the cults promote? Now, before I answer any of these questions, uh, let me just let you know ahead of time, in case you were wondering, this is not going to be an exhaustive study of either cults or apologetics. Uh, if you really want to know the most about apologetics, I would uh, advise you to go to our sermon audio page and look up our messages on systematic theology. We went through uh, several months of systematic theology where uh, in addition to other things, we covered the subject of apologetics fairly extensively. Uh, I'm not going to look at all the cults either. I'm going to look at some of the more major or more prevalent uh, cults in the world today. And then we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say in response to their various beliefs and claims. Now, I have a reason for doing this. It's not just so that we can all be smarter when it comes to understanding what's out there beyond these four walls. But we need to understand that learning more about the cults and especially learning more about the scriptures so that we can correct the erroneous doctrine promoted by the cults, I think is very important to our credibility as believers. I think it's also very important as a means of uh, correcting others with a desire to see them be restored to a right relationship to God through Christ. That's really our main reason for doing this. And so I think you'll see as we go through this uh, how beneficial these things might be. Well, this leads me uh, to another of my preliminary ground rules, as it were. Uh, I've said this before, but I need to say it again. We need to be very careful that we don't adopt an unloving, uh, judgmental, or pharisaical attitude uh, toward those who are victimized by false teaching. Uh, we should also avoid the tendency to laugh, uh, to poke fun at, or otherwise trivialize cultic beliefs. Those who are in cults are in desperate need of the truth. They don't need your ridicule. They don't need your scorn. They don't need your sideward glances. They don't need to be laughed at or made fun of. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need the truth. And they need faithful men and women of God who will give them that truth in a loving and understanding way. You know, it wasn't that long ago for some of you that you too were lost in a morass of various doctrinal beliefs. Uh, we have people of all stripes in this church, some coming from Arminian backgrounds, others coming from Roman Catholic backgrounds, others coming from other Protestant backgrounds where uh, the truth was scarce. And all you have to do is remember a little bit about your own past uh, and you'll soon 
see what I'm talking about. Uh, one of the most harmful things you can do to someone is to ridicule them or to make fun of them for what they believe. These are sincerely held beliefs. These people are sincerely wrong, but they hold to what they hold to by way of doctrine because they have been victimized uh, by the false teachers that they have followed. Uh, when we realize that we're talking about real people, we're talking about fellow image bearers of God who have been horribly deceived by evil and trapped in the devil's web of lies and deception. You know, our response should really be one of sorrow and pity, not of arrogance, not of sanctimony, certainly not of superiority. You know, I've said before, uh, we saw on vivid display how many people think about the doctrinally poor among us. Uh, how many uh, pages of the internet have been wasted uh, warning people that what's going on in a particular part of the country in the name of revival, it's not a revival at all, they say. Well, again, you're talking about a group of people that you've never met in a place you've never been who are experiencing something that you don't know anything about. Now, God himself can and does use some really bizarre means to bring people to himself. I'm living proof of that. But how many of those people came to know the Lord despite the chaos? I hope it was many. How many of those will end up in false teaching scenarios? Many of them. But how many of them might just find good, solid local churches where they can grow in their newfound faith? I pray for that as well. And so our position is one of hope. Our position is one of humility, not arrogance or superiority. None of us has a corner on the market of truth. We are what we are by the grace of God alone. And that applies to what we know as well. So let's get with our first definition here. What is a cult? Well, generally speaking... A cult is any group whose religious practices, whose religious beliefs are regarded as unorthodox according to an established objective standard of truth. So does that mean that any group of professing believers who uh, don't share what we as Reformed Baptists believe uh, to be objective truth, does that mean that they're in a cult? No. No. Within Christianity, there are many denominations. Uh, at last count, there were more than 200 here in the United States alone. And while these denominations are certainly not always on the same page doctrinally, what they believe and teach, for the most part, if they are credible, orthodox, what they believe and teach can be attributed to orthodoxy of some kind in the strictest sense. For example... All of them believe that God is the creator, that mankind fell by virtue of Adam's fall in the garden, uh, that God provided redemption for fallen man by his grace in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that God has revealed himself and his will to mankind in his word. They believe that the Holy Spirit indwells all who believe. They believe that believers have been gathered together in one body, which is represented by local bodies or local churches. And they believe that Jesus will one day return to gather 
his people to himself in glory. They also believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They believe in a number of things that represent them as being orthodox in their faith. Now again, there are wildly varying beliefs with regard to the finer points of doctrine, but those differences do not signify cult status. They might be suspect. They might be flat out wrong in certain areas. But again, cults are defined fairly strictly as those who have lost touch with biblical reality. Those who are earmarked by certain characteristics, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So apart from being at odds with orthodoxy, what is it about cults that does clearly define them as such? Well, first of all, cults are usually the creation of one or more individuals to whom devotion is given by the respective membership. Most cults begin by being cults of personality. Some charismatic leader comes along, some guy who knows how to build a better mousetrap, as it were. Uh, He's very likable. He's very amenable to those that he is seeking to entrap. And this individual, before long, gains a status of being trustworthy. Uh, In some cases, the more time goes on, they can even gain the status of infallibility. That's how uh, prone people are to fall for uh, others who seem to have it all together. And again, this is one of the things uh, that earmarks a cult. Just to give you a few examples, the Mormon cult is devoted to the teachings of its founder, Joseph Smith, and to a lesser degree, another prominent Mormon from ages past, Brigham Young. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, which we'll talk about a little bit more tonight. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses follow the teaching of Charles T. Russell uh, and a man named J.F. Rutherford. Christian scientists follow the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy and her interpretations of Scripture. Now, let me just stop there because if you know anything about Mary Baker Eddy at all, Mary Baker Eddy wrote uh, prolifically about Uh, The fact that in her estimation, death and sickness were not real. They're just figments of your imagination. Uh, No one's ever really sick. They just think they're sick. They're full of this belief that causes them to be sick. And all this disease can be gotten rid of by simply changing one's mind about those things. You know, it's really strange that uh, that, uh, uh, Mary Baker Eddy... Uh, wore glasses and toward the end of her life was waited on hand and foot by medical doctors and nurses who tried to keep her alive but couldn't. Why she couldn't simply wish her illnesses away and live forever, uh, that will forever remain a mystery. And yet there are still Christian scientists who promote her teachings, who insist that sickness is not real, it's just a figment of your imagination, And if you're close enough to God, you'll never experience any of those things. Uh, Again, sadly to say, everybody who has ever been a Christian scientist uh, has eventually died. Or will. Of what? Of some kind of sickness, right? So again, it's very suspect. Seventh-day Adventists are 
led by the teachings of their founding prophetess, Ellen G. White, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. They all have figureheads uh, to which they are beholden, uh, some of which, uh, some of whom have reached infallibility status. In each of these cases, these teachers, as can be demonstrated, as I will demonstrate, have deviated from the objective standard of God's word. Secondly, cults are always characterized by an emphasis on closed-mindedness. In other words, they're not interested in entertaining anyone or anything that might threaten what they believe to be ironclad truths handed down to them from their all-wise, all-knowing, inerrant, and infallible founders. They're very closed-minded. If you don't believe me, just try to have a sane, rational conversation with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. They will tell you. And by the way, built into these aberrant religions are mechanisms that they are taught to employ to get you off the scent, to knock you off your game. Uh, They don't always work, but they have these devices. For example, uh, the Book of Mormon itself. Uh, It is said in the Book of Mormon that the way you know that you're one of God's true children is if you read the Book of Mormon and you get that warm burning in your bosom. Now, if that ever happens to me, I attribute it to the burrito I ate that morning. Right? But they're serious about this. And again, not to make fun of them, but they use this as a mechanism to draw people in. I mean, who doesn't want that thing that they say will link you to God? And if you're gullible enough, you'll believe that. So the next time you read the Book of Mormon, you might psychosomatically begin to feel like it's really meaningful, like it actually is working. And that's how they lure these people in. And the moment you get more people into the group, it's easier to proliferate. It's easier to spread that false teaching because, uh, and face it, Mormons are just really, by the world's standards, they're really good people, right? One of the best assignments that you could ever hope to get in the Air Force was at Hill Air Force Base in Utah, uh, in Salt Lake City. Wonderful assignment, why? Because the family life was great. I mean, these people have it down when it comes to living morally and, and so on and so forth. Well, that's the surface, at least, right? We know man is desperately wicked, uh, and so even that's a ruse. But nonetheless, they, they present a very strong impression of themselves. And who wouldn't want that? If you do want that, then just read the Book of Mormon and hope for that warm burning in your bosom. Well, thirdly, cults are naturally antagonistic toward outsiders who, in their minds, make up the uninitiated, the unenlightened. That's another tactic that they use. If you're part of us, it's only because you're enlightened. It's only because you belong to that special group of people that God has opened their minds and made them aware of these truths. It's no different than the cults that the Apostle Paul dealt with in his own day. The proto-Gnosticism, the syncretism of the Colossians, uh, the Judaizers in Galatia. It's no different from any of that. These are the same tactics that the devil has used successfully uh, century after century, right? And once people get into that part 
of this group, the initiated, the enlightened, they begin to look down on everyone who's not. They're taught to be suspect about those who are outside of their organization. To make matters worse, many cult members are taught to believe that those on the outside are actually working in league with Satan. They insist that everyone else outside the cult is in league with Satan to rid the world of their truth. Again, it's a powerful argument to make for someone who's gullible in that regard. How powerful? Well, this is my fourth point. Most cults insist that to leave the group is to forfeit any hope of eternal life. We've seen a few times in history just how strong this belief can be. Death sometimes is preferable over being severed from a cult. This is the mentality that led more than 900 cultists to drink the Kool-Aid, literally, offered by their leader Jim Jones in Guyana in 1978. That's where that phrase comes from for you younger folks. To say that someone has drunk the Kool-Aid harkens back to this disaster that happened in the jungles of Guyana when 900 cultists drank poison rather than submit to the government authorities. Something similar happened in the Heaven's Gate cult. Anybody remember that? Back in 1997, I believe it was, there was this cult uh, that was led by a, a retired music teacher uh, who insisted that there was a spaceship hiding behind the Hillbop Comet yeah, it was in California, and on a particular day, they were all to dress in their uniforms, had, you know, pristine tennis shoes, and they dressed in their uniforms, and they covered themselves with, with purple cloaks and laid on their bed after having ingested poison themselves. And the idea was that this spaceship was going to come at that very instant, and they would be beamed up, and they would be transported to heaven in the spaceship. And I believe it was 39 cult members were found in this home uh, in California who had bought into that lie. And rather than stay here alive on earth, they found death to be preferable uh, to being ejected from the cult or being without the cult. Well, fifthly and finally, in addition to being unorthodox in their beliefs and practices, most of the mainstream cults of our day have strayed, not slightly, but significantly from not just doctrine as we understand doctrine, but from the simplest and clearest truths found in the Word of God. Some of them have gone so far afield of the Word of God, so far astray, that Really, what they believe is unrecognizable from a biblical perspective. Some cults, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, have even resorted to creating their own biblical texts. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not use the Bible that you and I use. The Jehovah's Witnesses use the New World Translation of the Scriptures, and they wrote that translation 
to agree with their erroneous teachings. The Mormons, uh, they have Joseph Smith's translation of the scriptures as well as the Book of Mormon. And the Mormons insist that the Bible used by Christians for nearly 2,000 years is incomplete, which is why they added the Book of Mormon, a book that is unashamedly subtitled Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Well, this kind of brings us to our next question. What are apologetics? Apologetics is simply the discipline of defending one's beliefs on the basis of a predetermined standard of truth. Where we're concerned as Christians, apologetics involves our defense of what we believe is the only objective standard of truth given to man. And what's that? It's the Word of God. And here's the most important thing to remember in this regard. In order to be an effective apologist, that is, if we're to succeed in defending the truth against the assaults that are constantly hurled at the Word of God by false teachers, by the cults, we must maintain one thing as our primary presupposition. You know, I've told you before what a presuppositionalist is. A presuppositionalist is one who presupposes something. And without presuppositions, you have no leg to stand on when it comes to objective truth. In other words, you and I must presuppose that the Bible is, in fact, as Paul said to Timothy, the theopneustos of God, the breathed out word of God. We must believe that it is infallible and inerrant in everything that it teaches. We must, we must, we must believe that. If you waffle on that point at any time, you're opening yourself up to being infected by occult mentality. Be careful. The word rightly divided, the word rightly understood and applied, is inerrant and infallible. Now, does that mean your English translation is inerrant and infallible? No. When we talk about inerrancy and infallibility, we're talking about the Bible and its original autographs. But we've even demonstrated in our study of systematic theology, namely in our study of bibliology, we've, we've talked about the fact that the Bible has been remarkably preserved over time. They do uh, analyses with supercomputers to determine uh, whether or not there are actually inconsistencies or doctrinal errors within all the extant uh, copies of manuscripts that we have today. And here's the thing. They've determined that there are no doctrinal errors in comparing all of those scriptures. And where there are variations, there's less than one-tenth of one percent variation that actually means anything. Usually it's just a word here or there that might be different. We've talked about that. In one passage it might say, uh, the boys in the field and another translation says the cattle in the field why because it just so happens that the difference between the word boy and cow in the Hebrew is just one little jot or one little tittle and it got missed somehow but doctrinally speaking God has preserved his word impeccably and it can be trusted it can be relied upon as infallible and inerrant and there's no other option, really. The minute you entertain the idea that the Bible does have multiple errors, as many people claim, contradictions, 
and so on and so forth. What does that do to your ability to combat the false teaching of the cults? You know, there's a popular expression that's used in the world today, and it's the result of this postmodern mind shift that happened sometime in the 40s and 50s. We've talked about that as well, where uh, everything's relative. Nothing is absolute, right? Well, along with this postmodern mind shift came the idea that truth is not objective, but subjective. And so we have all kinds of young people, especially today, walking around saying, well, that's your truth, but my truth is, you young people here tonight, hear me well. There is no such thing as your truth or my truth. There is only truth. It's objective. It's ironclad. Now, whether you believe it or not, that's a personal problem. Right? But there is objective truth. And it's found in the Word of God, rightly divided. You can all know it. You can all arrive at it. Uh, we just went over a thing in, of uh, dealing with Bible study over the last two weeks. Uh, there are ways that you can avail yourself of the truth contained in the Word of God. But enough of this talk about your truth and my truth and his truth and that truth. and No, there's only one truth. I say that and remind you of that because, again, if you start waffling on that one point, then what makes your truth any more valid than the Jehovah's Witnesses' truth? What leg do you have to stand on in insisting that you have a right understanding of the Scriptures and the Mormons do too? You just can't do that. There has to be an objective basis or foundation upon which to believe these things. Our own 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith presents this really clearly. Let me just read it to you. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto or to, to declare his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of god's revealing his will unto his people now being completed God has seen fit in His grace and in His mercy to provide us with His inscripturated Word. We would do well to pay attention. We would do well to become students of that Word. To the extent that you are students of the Word of God, you will find that your stance on objective truth is only magnified. I will tell you this, I've been studying the Word of God in earnest for more than 40 years, and there's never been a time where my confidence in him has been diminished as a result. In fact, just the opposite has happened. The more I read of the word of God, the more I realize I can trust it. The more people hurl accusations at the word of God concerning this 
contradiction, this error, and so on and so forth. Again, the word rightly divided proves that that's just so much nonsense. Let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? Now, what does the word of God itself have to say about cults and cultists? Well, it says a great deal about the subject. Uh, Jesus, for example, knew as soon as he returned to glory, there would be false teachers who uh, would begin the task of unraveling uh, everything he had taught his disciples. This is why he said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23, he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I believe that Jesus is talking not just about false prophets and false teachers in general. In his omniscience, I believe that Jesus is also talking about the cults that would be formed under the influence of these false prophets and false teachers. And he wants us to know that just because someone says, Lord, Lord, as the Jehovah's Witness would do, as the Mormon would do, as any cult member would do, that doesn't mean that their faith is genuine. That doesn't mean that we take them at face value and say, well, I'm glad you have your truth, I have my truth. No. What it means is we engage them in a systematic study of the truth. And where they are found deficient, if the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in them, and He can be, then the Holy Spirit will make clear what we are saying from the Word of God to them. Again, it's important to know that even Jesus saw these things happening. Of course he did. He's prophet, priest, and king. He's omniscient. But what about other people? Well, Paul talked about the same thing, did he not? Under inspiration in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Remember what he told Timothy? He said, I charge you, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Nothing but the word. What word did Timothy have at the time? The Old Testament. That shows you right there the validity of the Old Testament in a New Testament construct. He had the Old Testament. Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? Why is this necessary, Paul? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. 
endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul knew that it wouldn't take much for false teachers to gather the gullible to themselves, forming entire groups of individuals who would not only become devoted to their teaching, but who would be willing to recruit others to come and hear this teaching. And when that happens, the end result is more often than not a full-blown cult. Cults and cultists will always be with us. And the only recourse we have to control the spread of their lies and deception. And as Jude wrote in verse 23 of his epistle. To rescue others by snatching them out of the fire as it were. The only way we can do that is to commit ourselves to a proper understanding. And a faithful dissemination of God's word. Folks if we who know the truth are not doing this. I'm not going to say we're responsible that their blood's on our hands. It's not. That's, that's not a proper teaching of that particular passage. But we will be held to account. Every missed opportunity. Every time we're afforded the opportunity to speak forth the word of God and we don't, that's an affront to a thrice holy God. The same God who has gifted us with an understanding of the truth. The same God who has gifted us with the ability to speak. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not a theologian. I really don't know what to say. I've been in situations like that and I really don't know what to say. Well, it's, it's really not difficult. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If all you know is, I was blind and now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. I was a sinner like yourself. And Christ found me. If that's all you know, then tell them that. Tell them that they too are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Now they might be in the grand scheme of things, but we don't have the mind of God, do we? Every person who has blood flowing through their veins, breath going in and out of their lungs, every single person on planet earth right now is a candidate. For salvation. And if you know any better, please tell me how. It's like Spurgeon said you can't walk up to people and pull up their shirt tail and look for that telltale E on their back, signify, signifying them as God's elect. Doesn't work that way. So, what do we do? Not knowing, we disseminate the gospel freely, indiscriminately, in hopes that some might come. And to the extent that we're not doing that, the cults are winning. You know the cults are better at evangelism than most Christians? I mean, they're evangelizing in all the wrong ways. They're evangelizing to errors instead of the truth. But shouldn't we be about the Lord's business combating that? We should. You wonder how the world got in such upheaval? This is a crazy world. We're losing the culture war. You want to know why? Because we're content to sit back and watch it happen. All of us need to ask ourselves, are we doing as much as we can to prevent error? To stand on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ 
to proclaim his word from the rooftops, from the mountaintops? Are we doing that? Well, let me just say this as well before we begin looking at the Jehovah's Witnesses. Our aim in this study is not to become so puffed up with knowledge, so doctrinally astute that we rush out into the world and slay every cult member we can find. You know, we're not going through this study so that when the Mormon missionary guys roll up on their bikes, we immediately open the door and blast them with our Holy Ghost flamethrower, scorching them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. Our aim is to reason with these people. Our aim is to share the love of Christ with them. Our aim is to make them feel like they have something missing in their lives. And the truth has a wonderful way of doing that. I've had conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other cult members. And they end usually very pleasantly with those people being surprised at how little they know. And hopefully walking away with a desire to know more. We want to make sure that we share the truth of God's word with as much love and humility that we, as we can muster in hopes that those who have been deceived are able to see Christ. Well, let's begin with a cult that we're all familiar with, Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not going to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses just tonight. Um, actually, I've got some history of the cult to give you. It's a brief history. I mean, their history is riddled with all kinds of interesting things. Uh, but just a brief historical overview. And then next week, we'll come back together, and I'll talk more about um, their particular beliefs and how we can use the Scriptures uh, to combat those erroneous beliefs. But as far as their history goes... Um, this group, as I said a moment ago, was founded by a man named Charles Taze Russell. Um, the group adopted the designation of Jehovah's Witnesses in 1931 in Columbus, Ohio. This was actually uh, long after, uh, at least a decade after C.T. Russell's death. Uh, the group's beginnings uh, date back much earlier. Charles Russell was born on February 16, 1852. Uh, his parents were Joseph and Anna Russell. Uh, they were residents of Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. At an early age, uh, probably because of his strict upbringing as a Congregationalist, uh, Russell officially rejected the doctrine of eternal torment. Uh, if you know anything about Congregationalism and the Puritans from which they sprang, uh, there was a lot of talk about eternal torment, eternal damnation. And as we well know, that kind of preaching uh, leads to one of two things generally. It, it, by God's grace, it can lead to a fear of God and fear of his wrath. But it can also, uh, if the people are unconverted, unregenerate, it can also have the opposite effect. Uh, it can scare people away. It can leave a bad taste in people's mouths and they leave the church never to return. Well, Russell was in that camp. Uh, he was so turned off by the doctrine of eternal torment. He said, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And eventually he came to be against every form of organized religion. He didn't want anything to do with it. Much less uh, the church as it was known during this time. 
Well, by 1870, at the ripe old age of 18, uh, Russell organized a Bible class in Pittsburgh. Now, you might think that sounds strange because here's a man who's against the doctrine of eternal torment. Here's a man who really doesn't like organized religion, and now he's starting a Bible class. Well, this is fairly common with cult leaders. What they hate is your church. What they hate is that church and that church and that church. What they love is this church. So he thought he could do it better. It's not unlike Finney, by the way, and we'll get to Charles Grandison Finney at some point, uh, who actually became so disgruntled with his parents' Presbyterianism that he left and went completely off the rails and promoted some of the most bizarre beliefs about salvation, especially that you can imagine. But going back to Russell, he started this Bible class, uh, and after six years, he was elected to serve as pastor of the small group. From 1876 to 1879, he worked as an assistant editor uh, for a small periodical, small magazine uh, in Rochester, New York, monthly magazine, and it was while he was at work that he and his um, fellow workers began talking about the atoning work of Christ. That might sound strange to you too, but guess what? Back then in the 1850s, they talked about things like this. They talked about, you know, and from 1850 all the way till the turn of the century, uh, discussions about religion were very common. Why? Because most people went to church. Most people had a doctrinal viewpoint. Uh, most people had some form of a Christian worldview. Well, he was arguing with his co-workers about the atoning work of Christ, and he was forced to resign uh, because they didn't agree with him. This is the beginning of his erroneous beliefs and the presentation of those beliefs in public. He left that publication, and he founded a publication of his own that was entitled The Herald of the Morning. This would later develop into, you guessed it, the Watchtower, announcing Jehovah's Kingdom. Now it's known, I think, just as the Watchtower. Right? Jehovah's Witnesses also have another publication. You've probably seen it. It's called Awake. Uh, oftentimes at airports, on the street in San Antonio, you'll see these little kiosks set up and they're giving these magazines away for free. Don't take them. They're poison. Trust me on that. Don't go out of your way, at least in that setting, uh, to try to talk to them because they are very proud, they are very loud, and they will talk you down, they will do everything in their power to prevent them from looking like they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, if you must talk to them, pull them to the side if they are willing and share the truth with them. But they sell these uh, for a nominal donation, I believe now you can get either of these publications or both. Uh, these publications today are also delivered by mail. Um, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million copies per month printed in over a hundred languages. It's a big operation. In 1886, Russell's Watchtower Tract Society published his first book. This book was called The Millennial Dawn. Uh, it's been retitled since then as Studies in the Scriptures. In 1914, Russell published another book entitled The Finished Mystery. This book was so crazy that it caused a split in his own cult. 
Actually, the cult split. The smaller group followed Charles Russell. The larger group followed a man named Judge J.F. Rutherford. Uh, The larger group would later become known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Russell died in 1916, um, and so his group kind of just faded away into obscurity. Russell, if you look at the newspapers of the day where he lived, particularly in New York, Pittsburgh, and so on and so forth, uh, Russell was an incredibly unscrupulous businessman. Um, he was a snake oil sell- salesman for all intents and purposes. He, he began selling shares in what's called Miracle Wheat. Anybody ever heard of that? It was a ruse that was set up to kind of bilk people out of their money with promises of uh, crops and, and multi-million dollar estates and things like this. Well, he was proven to be a fraud by the courts. Uh, in the proceedings that uh, revealed him as a fraud, uh, he was put on the stand and he had to answer certain questions like, were you ever ordained as a pastor? Initially he said yes, but then the lawyers doing what lawyers do uh, convinced him that the correct answer was no. He was never ordained. They asked him if he knew Greek. He said, well, of course. I'm, you know, I lead a movement here. You know, I'm not, what do you think, I'm mincemeat here? You know, of course I know how to speak Greek. Until the lawyer brought a simple page with the Greek alphabet on it and asked him to identify the Greek characters by their names. He could not do it. So... Slowly but surely, everything was coming out about C.T. Russell that his followers did not want to hear. But let me just prove how powerful cults are. What effect do you think all this revelation had on the cult? Had no effect at all. No effect at all. Why? Because by this time, his followers had become so beholden to him that they would not budge. And oh, by the way, even the group that left to become the Jehovah's Witnesses proper under Judge Rutherford, they still carried on with a lot of Russell's teachings. Rutherford, of course, added a lot to the teaching. Um, But if you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness today, do you rely on the teachings of Charles Taze Russell? Most of them are taught to say no. No, we don't. But even recent documentation has been revealed to show that they very much still use Russell's teachings. Again, it's, it's all a ruse to keep the people uh, involved in the cult itself. Anyway, Russell, as I said, was succeeded in leadership by the man who had previously broken off from the smaller group. Uh, Rutherford was, at the end of the day, he was a lot more prolific in his writing than Russell, very well educated, which in many ways made him a much more credible leader of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Rutherford died in 1942. Uh, And just to prove the point I made a minute ago, Walter Martin, anybody know who Walter Martin is? Walter Martin wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. If you don't have a copy of that, you need a copy of that. Uh, I just learned recently that Walter Martin was a Reformed Baptist. 
I didn't know that. I'd been reading his book for years and years and years. I knew he was a smart man who uh, uh, wrote a lot of good things about the cults and provided a lot of information. But Walter Martin said, Jehovah's Witnesses have never ceased to be Russellites, no matter how loudly they proclaim the opposite. So they're still infected by the teachings of this discredited, shameful leader. And again, you have to ask yourself, why? Well, one of the reasons why is not only because they're beholden to this teacher, as false as he might be, but, you know, once the train leaves the station, a better example, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's hard to get back in the tube. And I'm the kind of nerd that actually tried that on a few occasions, right? I thought I could get it back in. You can't. Don't even, don't even bother but that's one of the reasons that there are still Jehovah's Witnesses today. They don't care about the past. They don't care how discredited Russell was because they're still hanging on the false teaching that he promoted. They're still hanging on their erroneous beliefs with regard to the Trinity and with regard to the end times, with regard to, you know, they believe themselves to be uh, the remnant, the only remnant that will make it to heaven. And so, again, we're going to talk about that more Lord willing, in our time together next week. We're also going to talk about the Bible that they currently use. Uh, The New World Translation of the Scriptures wasn't published until several years after Rutherford's death. Uh, The New Testament was in 1950, and the Old Testament, making the complete Bible, was in 1961. But make no mistake about it, that New World Translation is the direct result of the teachings of both Russell and Rutherford. Uh, In our next time together, as I said, we're going to begin exploring some of the more common errors um, among the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, If you're taking notes, I'll be looking first at some general doctrinal beliefs. And then I'll be talking more specifically about what they believe about the Trinity, what they believe about the deity of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the doctrines of salvation, hell, eternal punishment, doctrines of the resurrection and the future state of both unbelievers and believers. And here's where the apologetics portion of this study will come into sharper focus. When we begin contrasting and comparing what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe with Scripture itself, um, you're going to see exactly what they have done uh, in an attempt to dismantle uh, much of what the Scriptures have to say. Um, You know, the last resort, when you can't really argue from the Scriptures, in the cults, Estimation, the last resort is just write a Bible of your own, right? And say that it was written based upon impeccable Greek scholarship, which it wasn't. And again, more on that in our next time together.